we knew more about you in direct mail than we do today on, on digital. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is uh, a true living legend of the business, Carl Fremont. So welcome, Carl. Thank you, thank you. When we, when, when we last spoke, Carl, I think we were talking about Feltman's hot dogs. Yes. Have you made any progress yeah. on the Feltman's I project? Did. I did. I found them, and they are uh, betomped, as we say in... Uh, in Yiddish, they're right. very good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they have their, I, and I can't believe I couldn't find them for a long time. Yeah. So thanks for bringing them back to my uh, consciousness and my taste. It was, it was truly great. So thank you. Yeah, they've really uh, rediscovered something in the art of the uh, hot, the Coney Island hot dog. Yeah, of course, yeah, I, I remain yeah. a Nathan's loyalist, but I did think the Feltman's was, was noteworthy. I do too, but I also like Hebrew National. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's also great too. So, but thank you for bringing it back uh, to me. I appreciate it. Let's um, dial it back a little bit, and I'd love to start uh, when you began back in the early early '80s at Ted Bates. And that was one of the magic names in our industry. And what do you remember from that period? You were you were a young buck. I was, but you know, and I, you and I talked about this before. My dream, which is uh, odd for this industry, was always to get into advertising. And um, I, ever since my days of watching as a kid, Bewitched, believe it or not, uh, with Darren Stevens was doing his presentations with Larry Tate. I knew that was for me. Uh, and that was truly the Mad Men days, even though I was a little kid. And what I had always had admired and couldn't wait to get into this industry was about ideas and creativity. And for me, the, the notion of storytelling, being able to tell a story uh, about a brand to a consumer um, and bringing those ideas to life was really what attracted me to the industry from a little kid, which is odd because, as you know, most people get into this industry uh, not necessarily on purpose, but I did. And for me, those days of uh, Ted Bates, and I call them, you know, a transitional period from more of the Mad Men era, which was before me. Some women live for excitement, even danger. Hurry, the car is waiting. Their men use 007. There are plenty of safer aftershaves to wear. New 007 makes any man dangerous. Once he's used it, there's no turning back. Its subtle, masculine aroma turns the quietest evening into an adventure. 
you'll find yourselves going through the wildest things together and loving it. To where we are today, those were traditional, transitional times. Um, and what struck out to me at those days at Ted Bates was Ted Bates himself was one of the pioneers, as you know, in the in the industry. And he developed the USP, the Unique Selling Proposition. You can! It can be. Merry Summer! Brighten up with Tenderleaf, the brighter tasting tea. Tenderleaf tea is brighter tasting because they pick only the bright, young, tender tea leaves that give you brighter, tender leaf flavor over ice. Get tender leaf tea bags, instant tender leaf, and iced tea mix. And I so connected to that notion of that every brand has a unique individual selling proposition, and then we needed to understand what that was through insights, through research, and to tell the story. So we were the original ones of for M&M's, melt in your mouth, not in your hand. That was a USP. So we, I was in this transitional period from more traditional type advertising to where it would be eventually go. And what for me was missing at Ted Bates when I was there for almost five years was accountability. And so what do I mean by accountability? We did great advertising. And it moved business, but I didn't know how much business it was truly moving. I didn't understand that the the work I was doing early on in media planning, what impact that was truly having on sales. And nobody seemed to know. And I kept feeling that there was more to what I was doing that was driving sales that I needed to circle back and close that loop on. And that for me was where then I pointed my next part of my career and really the future of my career moving forward was around the notion of how do we marry great ideas and creativity with accountability. And that to me was where I then focused. What was the Bates atmosphere? You were right after the Mad Men era and sort of transitioning. You're in many ways, you're a bridge from one era to the next. Correct. What do you remember from the culture early on at Bates? Uh, well, every, everyone worked hard. We had a lot of training, uh, which was great. Um, I miss some of that in the industry today, the focus on training young people in the industry. It was, though, the, you know, the turning of decades from the late 70s to the early 80s. So there was a lot of experimenting with um, different types of substances that you took. <laughs> in yeah. the Believe it or not, it was it was pretty pretty shocking to think uh, that today that kind of culture, where it was kind of very open, actually, um, it wasn't really very hidden back in the in the late seventies, early eighties about taking uh, different kinds of drugs. To be honest, yeah, that wasn't the full culture of the agency. But it was uh, it was part of it. It's something I definitely remember. Uh, you know, we were still smoking in the office, which is kind of odd to think too. You'd go into a conference room and everybody lit up. You know, right. where, where would you ever think of doing that today? But as far as the work goes and the and the culture of the work, 
it was pretty rigorous. You know, we did a lot of training. I got a lot of learning early on. The one thing that did strike me um, was there was a great amount of synergy between media and creative and account services uh, because media was still at that time part of the core of the big agencies. So it was very much integrated then. And I would say I got some of my best training through that collaboration between media and um, our research group and our creative teams all working symbiotically together to accomplish the goals. It was, it felt much more collaborative from a big agency standpoint back then than what you see today because it's also still so bifurcated and separated. Yeah, that seems to be a common thread that there used to be a lot more emphasis on training. Uh, and um, you raise another issue. I don't want to ask you to be a Monday morning quarterback, but we've seen the uh, separation of creative and media. Now we're seeing you know, the walls of Jericho crumble uh, in part via the uh, impact and power of digital and a lot of that coming back together as the industry is trying to find its footing. Give us the benefit of your perspective on where creative and media and planning all used to sit alongside each other and work in a much more together fashion and where it went and kind of where it is now. Yeah, it's, it's I was fortunate to have been early on in my career where that was all together still. And I believe that bringing the creative side together with media um, and collaborating more enabled us to have better advertising because we were creating for the medium, right? The medium, as we've said in the past, was the was the message and we were creating for that medium. So there was a lot more collaboration around that um, and ideas would flow between groups. And then as we know, um, the agencies, the big agencies unbundled media, created a separate entity. And I believe that that was the kind of undoing in my opinion. And I'm, I'm probably not alone, but I'm certainly a few of the people who will actually say that uh, because it was 20 years ago. It was about 1999, uh, 2000, around that time when media became unbundled. And, and we all know the reasons why it did. In my opinion, uh, you know, the agency uh, commission was being greatly challenged and we needed to figure out new ways of driving revenue, new ways of looking at compensation, but also bundling media spend together allowed us at that early time to go to the networks in particular as one group with all of our clients' money and sort of uh, drive the, the marketplace from an efficiency side, from a um, uh, ability to garner the best advertising spots. Um, so that kind of clout early on, but nobody took a look at it and said, well, at some point in time, media is going to become democratized. 
What democratized it, meaning that it doesn't matter if you have a dollar or if you have a billion dollars, media would become democratized in a biddable manner, in a digital biddable manner. And really what supplanted the investment spend was data and the intelligence because data was driving very much your pricing, knowing what performed, how it performed, what became the new clout. It became clout 2.0. But what we lost um, in that unbundled early on days of bringing creative and media together, I don't think that was compensated by the new way of going to market from a media. I don't believe that that our clients uh, truly benefited from that bifurcation of creative and media. It needed to come together. And I was fortunate that I was at a Wonderman where it was all together and then Digitas where it was all together. And now I'm running an independent agency, Quigley Simpson, where it's integrated marketing solutions. And I honestly believe that you can be the best at creative, best at media, best at account service individually, but bringing it all together as one is a much better way of marketing than if everything is is separated out. So I had the benefit of seeing it in both ways. So that democratization of media that you talk about, that of course was fueled by digital. When this first went down around the year 2000, that was pre-digital, largely. So the media agencies must have just been making money hand over fist. Yeah, it was a a nice business. Uh, Again, it was unbundled in part for because the commission was being challenged. The typical agency, 15%, if you recall, commission was being usually challenged. And this was a, a new way of driving revenue and going to market. But I don't believe that anyone foresaw that when it was unbundled, that there would be a time uh, limit on that. I gave it 20 years and then it would um, it would sort of not be of use anymore. And that so since that was 1999, when the first kind of agencies unbundled, that means last year was my 20-year mark. I gave it literally, I wrote down on a piece of paper in 1999 that this would only last 20 years and then it would be hugely challenged. Mm. And that's what's happened, you know, and we are in a digital era. We don't even call it that. It's just business as it as usual today in a in a operated in a digital enabled way and definitely digital is democratizing in the way we go to market um in a biddable way it's democratizing all media so it's data intelligence that's driving it and what will distinguish advertising today is not only the data and the insights and the intelligence but marrying it with creative with messaging that resonates with individuals. So bringing this all together is critical. So uh, when I think of you, Carl, I always think of you as a guy who was there first. And some of that, I think, comes from that early training that you referenced at Bates, 
but also the experience that you got at Wonderman and working for one of the true great minds, you know, of our industry that we've yeah. ever produced in Leicester. Yes, absolutely. And I was very fortunate to have worked with Lester uh, Wonderman and learned from him. He was definitely someone that I looked up to and admired. And I admired for, for him as a person, but also for the simplistic way he looked at marketing. And, you know, we called it direct marketing that's sort of out of fashion. But I would say that was the original DTC. Direct marketing was the original direct-to-consumer. We didn't call it that, and now everybody thinks that DTC is in fashion. But uh, honestly, it's been practiced for decades and decades. You know, beginning with people like Howard Draft and Lester Wonderman, and they all understood what I think was distinguishing was understanding how to leverage data, and we didn't even really call it that, with um, with insights and and marrying it to messaging that would truly resonate. And Lester wrote a book in 1990 called Being Direct. You can find it on eBay. And all the principles of direct-to-consumer marketing are in there. And again, Lester took some very simplistic ways of engaging with consumers in clubs, uh, like Book of the Month Club, Columbia Record and Tape Club, for those listeners out there who might remember those early days. But he took some really simplistic principles and applied it to direct marketing and really pioneered the industry that we know today. Among those legacies is our dedication to what I call accountable creativity, which means exactly what it says. Creativity that creates results you can count and count on. Not only creativity in the ads, commercials, web pages, and mailings that we produce, but also creativity in media, production, planning, and every other facet of what we do for our clients. We have created for each era the gold standard for our industry. I mean, what we are doing today, the foundation was laid by people like Lester Wonderman and, and Howard Draft and many others in that direct-to-consumer marketplace. And, Carl, you were in data, I think this is sort of paraphrasing your words, before we even really knew what data was. Exactly, exactly. Reflect on that and the journey that you've taken and in many cases helped lead where data today is so centric to every decision that marketers are making. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we were leveraging data before it was in fashion. We weren't saying that, we just knew it. And we actually, in the early days, had in, uh, more information about you as a consumer than we do today. And what's interesting to me, with all the emphasis on privacy, um, today and all the legislation and policies out there on privacy and protecting it um, in a compliant way, we knew more about you in direct mail than we do today on, on digital. We knew your name, your address, we knew what you bought, how recent you bought it, how much you spent, and we leveraged that information to provide more relevant, direct marketing 
to you as a consumer. And people didn't really complain, you know, about it, about that, having that information. Tech companies around the world are prepping for new data legislation that will be enforced in Europe next month, and many are not ready. Last year you were talking, it was Cambridge Analytica, right? And the thought of, oh no, they're giving away our data, what are they doing with it? Yeah, it's it? like, holy moly, what yeah, just happened? Right. That was last year. That, that's almost a startling point you made that I don't want to gloss over, that we knew more about consumers then than we do now. And look at the debate now, and you touched on it as well, around trust and privacy. But that's an odd juxtaposition of facts that we knew more then than now pre-digital. Exactly. I mean, I could go to your home and say, I knew you purchased this item. How much? I mean, I, could, I physically had your address. And now it's, it's anonymous. And there's so much. I never clear my cookies. I don't care. Use whatever you want on me. I rather have more relevant information um, that's sent to me than anonymous flooding my streams, flooding my news feeds with with advertising that isn't relevant to me. So I never clear cookies. I keep them in. And whenever it's suggested to me, you know, to clear them, I'm like, no, I will never do that because I want what is sent to me to be the most relevant. So I personally believe that you can uh, protect people and create opt-in and the, you, we've got to, as an industry, police ourselves better. Um, we're, we're doing it and we're do, starting to do more of it, but rather than legislation dictating what we should and or could do in marketing, I believe the industry should continue to police itself, monitor itself, set standards. We're doing it already. The IAB has been great about about, um, influencing a lot of those standards and influencing legislation. But if we do more of that and respect privacy, I think that the, the advocacy groups will back down somewhat. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly a, a hot issue, and uh, now when there's one of these data breaches or you know a hacking incident, it's pretty staggering, you know, the impact that it has. And I kind of separate that uh, the data breaches um, from how advertisers are using and leveraging the data itself. The security breaches and the hacking, we obviously need software and everyone needs to and has installed software that constantly needs to be updated. We're just, we're in that era. We're always going to have people who are going to try and hack into systems and, and leverage data. I think you have to separate that out from advertising. I once had a client who would say to her, well, what are we as an advertising industry doing to monitor the ourselves and how we're using and leveraging their first party data? And I'd say there's more problems and challenges with how brands are securing their own data than how advertisers are using it. So take a look in-house and make sure that the data that, you, that you're collecting um, is secure. 
And that has that has little to do with advertising and more to do with just general data security. Yeah, no, this is going to no doubt continue as an issue. It's just it's where the world is, as you said. So you have this magical run at Wonderman, and then you have another long magical run um, at Digitas, and ultimately brethren and sistren within that company. You worked on some great clients over the years, Absolutely. and I know some fantastic stuff with American Express that was very memorable. As you look back on you know, either part of your career there, what comes to mind when you think of some of the great work that you did? Well, you know what? I, I will give a lot of credit to American Express uh, at the time uh, and people like John Hayes and Nancy Smith and others who... Um, who accepted uh, failure and, and embraced failure. They knew we were new in the industry and they knew there would be a lot of trial and error and said, the only way we're going to learn and move forward is if we embrace things that work and learn from them and things that don't work and learn from them. So I give a lot of credit, not just to American Express in those days, but to any marketer that truly embraces that notion of it's okay to, to fail and learn. It's, if you don't apply it, then that's true failure. If you are not successful and you apply that learning, then it's not failure in my opinion. Uh, it's not wasted uh, energy. So some of the early learnings were from webisodes like um, we weren't the first, but early in, with Superman and Seinfeld and a webisode around that and garnering millions of viewers. You know, nobody was doing it then. Two. You have a reservation? Superman. I don't see anything. Might be under Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Oh, yeah, Man of Steel. Right here. This way. Man of Steel. Why do you do that? Want to sit by the kitchen? No. No, you don't. I mean, how can they put this much mayonnaise on tuna fish and expect people to eat it? Why do you care? You're invulnerable to harm. It's not harm. It's too rich. Makes me queasy. Send it back. Ah. We got a little... Hmm? Hmm. Napkin? Why? It's impervious to stain. Excuse me. Superman? Yes. I don't know if you remember me, Barry Katz. You saved my life once. I was hanging from a train trestle. Yeah, sure, sure. How are you? Oh, terrific. Great. I don't want to interrupt your meal. I just wanted to say thanks again. No, not a problem. It's good to see you again, Barry. Yeah, he's the best. You're good, too. Thank you. Doing the first uh, streamed concert. Um, and doing an exclusivity just for members. Um, so we were so early in on innovating the first social platform members project before there was social platforms. And that's to me that, that notion of experimentation uh, and willingness to uh, learn that is missing today and totally understand we're in a more of a, especially today with COVID-19 and the concerns that we have today are much more focused on the short term. I would love to see uh, a openness and willingness 
to balance the two, to balance the short-term needs with the long-term goals of building uh, a brand and, and experimenting. You know, and, and where I am today, I know we'll jump to that later, but we've adapted that notion through what we call brand the demand, that building a brand's image and association long-term will have a positive impact on longer term sales and performance. So I, I, I wish there would be a larger return to those days. Understand we're in a different circumstance, but even before COVID, we were coming into a period of much more shorter term marketing goals than looking at a longer term impact at building a brand and experimenting would have. So how much of that, Carl, that move towards short-termism, and I know the ANA puts out stats every once in a while about the average tenure of a CMO, and it's always less, you know, with every new study. It's down to somewhere less than two years, less than two years, I think. So you look back and you see the tenures of some of the lions of the industry, and there were people who held their positions for a long time. We knew their names. You know, are we in part suffering from a loss of those, you know, charismatic characters and leaders? Do you see less of that today? Or are they taking a new form and they're the YouTube influencers and the TikTokers and those are the new charismatic leaders, if you will? I hope not. Uh, I sincerely do. I think it comes down to, you know, what we often call bravery and, you know, how are we defining bravery and the ability, as I said, to be able to launch into new areas that um, and almost make make consumers a little uncomfortable um, and okay, being okay with that is is somewhat lost today. I mean there 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 are still those marketers that are branching out and being brave but um there I'd like to see more of that bravery out there and that takes time it takes convincing a board that we're in this for the long term that um measuring that over time is it's going to take time to measure the impact that that has and we are in a very short-term performance world. So it, it takes bravery to do so. It takes commitment and it takes alignment. Because if you don't have company alignment on that notion of building a brand's image and testing new things that will have an impact, if you're not aligned internally uh, at the corporate level with the board, then you're not going to succeed. And that's what's I'm I'm afraid what's happening is a loss of bravery in lieu of the short-term goals. Mm. Well said. So let's talk about what you're doing at Quigley Simpson, which in a way, looking at it from the outside in, is the culmination of everything that you've learned over, you know, 30 some odd years. Uh, and putting that together in, you know, a very bold built for today and tomorrow way for your clients. Yes. 
So, you know, my the journey that I took from large agency that eventually got, it was the first merger, by the way, Ted Bates with Saatchi, Saatchi and Saatchi, which then got acquired itself by publicists. But from that, from that large agency post Mad Men era uh, to a one that was digitally enabled and focused uh, through uh, Wonderman and later Digitas, and and now being leading a independent, very forward-thinking agency that is integrated marketing solutions with creative and media account services, data and analytics all together, to me represents a full circle uh, back to integrated services, but also through accountability because um, our founders, um, Renee Hill Young and Gerald Bagg come from the same cloth that I was cut from, you know, from a direct marketing, direct to consumer cloth. And so our sensibility to accountable marketing and driving accountable marketing, but also innovating. And the early pioneers in direct marketing, like a Lester Wonderman, um, uh, were inventing. They were pioneering. And we need to have that return to the intersection of creativity through data and intelligence and through uh, accountability and innovation. So that is today what I believe overall is missing uh, along with this notion of bravery. And I believe that marketers are looking for that advice. They don't know themselves what to do. And a big part of what we're figuring out and we've developed uh, methodology and tools to do, is what is the right balance of investment and messaging between building a brand's long-term consumer association um, and driving intent um, with sales and performance. Getting that balance right today is what I believe what many brands are struggling with and will continue to struggle. If I put too much on the brand, side do I lose on sales immediacy? If I focus only on short-term sales and performance, am I missing the opportunity to have a more loyal consumer over time that will frankly commit more to my brand by buying more? So getting that balance right, it's not an either or, it's a both and it's both together require sharpness of skill. And, you know, we've, since our founding, have always focused on having that right balance between driving a brand's association and intent for long-term brand performance and profitability. And that, I think today, bringing all of that together, I don't see many that are doing it. But when you talk to those that are managing brands, and CMOs, getting that balance right is what we need to return to today. So take us inside the uh, engine room, if you will, Carl. Our clients, your clients, spending real time talking about planning for, in a traditional sense, 
looking ahead to the next year or is everything the next 30, 60, 90 days? It's a great question. It's a balance. And I still believe that we're too short term, to your point. I don't believe it should be 30, 60, 90 days. That's obviously too short. Um, but even a year is not enough. We, we need to kind of return to longer term planning. And that requires a true, true partnership and openness between an agency and their partners. We're very fortunate to work with a number of clients long-term for you know, 15, 16 years. The, you develop trust and a long-term partnership. And what unfortunately has happened is that many brands, many marketers have a short-term relationship with their agency. So how can you do long-term planning when you have an agreement that's only for a few years? It takes a year to at least get on board and drive results. And then within a year of learning, the business is all is next in review. So we're, we're, we're in a huge short-term thinking, not only about the business, but about our partnerships. And again, we need to think about long-term partnerships and growing together. And only when we can grow, learn, and innovate together, and we're fortunate to do so, can you truly have success. And it's unfortunate that we are overall in a more short-term market, and certainly COVID-19 has forced many brands, which is even shorter-term planning, and we believe that for in the situation we're in today requires even more longer term planning because it is so tenuous what we're in that we need to be thinking much longer term. I personally believe the brands that will succeed after COVID-19 are those that have a longer term plan that are building greater consumer association and loyalty. Fantastic, I think that was a great finish. Well, thank you. And uh, it's always great to talk to you. All right. Uh, awesome. Stay, stay well. And um, Delhi on me when this is over. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.